We are in week five of our Relationship Toolbox series. Uh, this, this series where we're talking about the different kind of relationships that we have with God, with people, with the creation, and what are different tools that we could bring to these relationships that, that might help us. And today we're gonna be looking, I've gotten some critiques, like who uses the tools that you use? Like those aren't tools. Like, they're object lessons, okay? Um, everybody's toolbox looks a little bit different. But today I'm going to go with a much more traditional tool for those of you who actually are handy. And um, we're going to go with this. Does anybody know what this is? This is a level. Very good. Um, what is a level used for? Leveling things. Okay. What does that even mean? Yeah, make sure things are straight, make sure things are balanced, you know, that there's, and, and it's really kind of funny that, that it's to make sure that they're not angled in one way or the other. And my wife's birthday's coming up later on in this month, and she's kind of been dropping some hints for her birthday that she wants a new kitchen table. And I know, so like adulty, right? And I was like, okay, well, this week I was able to find the table and I surprised my wife with a new kitchen table. And it was funny because the problem is at our kitchen table that our kids continue to argue with each other at this table. Um, as they get, we've been around the table more than we've ever been in our kitchen together. It's been wonderful, but there's so much arguing, so much arguing that it's not fair, it's not fair. And so, you know, to, to solve the problem of it's not fair, I went and I got my level. And I know it's like, really? What kind of food are you eating? Um, so w what I had to do was I, I put my level on the end of the table, and this is what I saw. Our table is completely level. You see, in our kitchen, I, I look at it and think, it may not matter for your kitchen table if it was level, but that bubble at the center was right between the lines, and that was a huge deal for our table because you could see behind that bubble a bunch of foosball men. And in our kitchen, we're surrounding a table because if that table is not level, can I tell you what happens? Conflict. Conflict happens because the ball begins to slide one way, slide the other, and the solution to my table conflict in my kitchen was simply a level. It was a level. Wouldn't it be amazing if all we had to do to solve the conflict in our relationships was take out a level? Wouldn't it just be great if we were like, siblings are fighting over shotgun. Hold on. Let me see what's going on here, right? It would be wonderful. What if it was like our monthly budget? Well, should we spend this and this? Hold on. Let's get out a level. My coworkers not holding up to their responsibilities that they're supposed to. Let's fix that. Wouldn't this be great if this is how we could solve all our problems? It would be wonderful. But for most of us, it's not the conflict that's the issue. I know that's probably surprising. You're like, conflict is the issue. No, conflict's not the issue. It's usually how we resolve the conflict that's the issue. This is where we come in to problems because many of us, if we had a level, may not use it to do this. We would wield this as a weapon to say, that's how we fix conflict. Or we would begin to take things and say, in order for this conflict to go well, I'm going to make sure that everybody understands why I'm right and build my arguments against someone else so that now when I approach them, there's no doubt in my mind, I'm correct. And we no longer are level, are we? We uh, some of you, you don't even want your level. You, you, you get into conflict and you think, okay, you know what? I'll just, I'm going to look for my level app. And yeah, there's a, a level app on your phone. 
and you begin to turn to say, I just can't seem to find my app, and, and I'll, I'll find it soon, and you use distraction, this idea of I'll, I'll find it eventually to push your conflict away and pretend it doesn't exist and we don't have to talk about it, I'll just disappear. And we run from it that way. And, and here's the deal. It's interesting how all of us handle conflict because it's just so different, and yet it's one of the most common elements to every one of our relationships. Every one of us has this. When you put two people together, and if you're here at Crossbridge online or in person, I'm going to surprise you with this, but you've got issues. Did you know that? Okay. And when you put two people with issues together, do you know what you get? More issues. You get conflict. You get conflict. You have opinions, right? This is a guarantee to any relationship you have. Amen? This is the one time if you're, you're with your partner, your spouse, um, a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're like, yeah, we have conflict. Everyone's going to go, yeah, me too, right? We get this. And, and while there's all different sorts of conflict and ways to handle it, I think what's important is, again, not saying conflict's the issue, but why are we going into conflict? What's behind some of this? And I'm convinced this morning, and every time I say conflict, I think it's important for a baseline that the definition I'm going to work with is conflict is really a perceived attack on our self-worth. It's a perceived attack on our self-worth. And the definition is really important to me because that idea of perceived attack, that first thing there, when we go into conflict with someone, the other person may never know it. Or someone can be in conflict with us and we would never know it. Have you ever had someone say to you, like, are you mad at me? Are, are you mad at me? Did I say or do something upsetting to you? Right? Not to be a jerk, but they're trying to figure out, what, what, what did we do wrong? Because you seem to be mad at me, but I, I don't know anything. And that's because sometimes we think and say and we do things that aren't that big of a deal to us, but to the other person, they are a big deal. Or someone does something and we're so frustrated at them. And it's like, why are we so frustrated at them? Because it's a perceived attack on what? On our self-worth. Sometimes... We do things that hit deep in each other. It causes us to question ourselves when they made that decision. Or when we made that decision, they began to say, maybe I'm less than, and we feel threatened, we feel scared. That's simply our self-worth being attacked. Who am I? It's being attacked. And when it comes to conflict, let's, let's just all agree, most of us are not searching this out in relationships. We're not getting into relationships saying, I hope that I get into as much conflict as possible. This would be what I want for life, right? But we don't really go after conflict because we know deep down it affects our self-worth. And if you're here and, and you are a follower of Jesus, you have accepted that he is the son of God, that he died, that he rose again and ascended and sits at the right hand of God, if you adhere to his teaching, my hope is that we are all living in such a way that we're thinking, act like Jesus, act like Jesus, act like Jesus, right? Can I do this? And that is great. But we all know as followers of Jesus that something inside us shifts when we go into conflict, doesn't it? It's really hard to act like Jesus. And in these moments, we realize that it's much easier to act like Jesus than to react like Jesus. Let me say that again. It is much easier to act like Jesus than react like Jesus. Do you know what I mean? 
You've got to feel this with me because we can all put up a Jesus front if you follow Jesus, right? We can all like try to hold our tongue sometimes, or we can all try to do the right things to behave. But when it comes to conflict, we shift somehow. Something inside us is pricked and we become different. All of us do. But Jesus is different because he handled conflict like a champ. He handled conflict like a champ. And let me be very upfront with you about Jesus. This man was surrounded by conflict. If you're like, no, he's the son of God. He loved people. Let me tell you, when you love people as aggressively he did, um, if you're not in conflict, you don't end up on a cross. Okay? That's just as simple as it is. He was in conflict all the time, so much so that he actually had to sit with his disciples and say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to get into conflict. And I need to help you unpack how to handle conflict. And in the passage that Dell had read for us today, it's almost like he's handing them a level for their life to say, there is an appropriate way to do this because it will come into your life. And in that passage that Dell had read for us in uh, the biography of Jesus written by Matthew, this is amazing to me that, you know, Matthew is a follower of Jesus who, he was a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector. So it's no surprise to me that a guy who was basically hated by his entire nation for being like considered a sellout collecting taxes for the Romans, that, that he's the guy who's going to record how to handle conflict. Because he was likely in conflict with every one of those disciples all the time. They didn't like him. He, he was kind of set up that way. And so I love that he unpacks this teaching and captures it from Jesus. As we approach chapter 18, the other thing to remember in uh, this biography is that like, when, when you read a biography of any other um, person in history, there's no little numbers. We, we, we break chapters up, don't we? But we don't put verses when you're reading a biography. The verses that are in here sometimes get in our way, that this is written originally on, on a scroll, right? It's written all together without the numbers, without the delineations, and I think we miss things in a passage when we stop right where someone said, it's a new uh, subject. Matthew 18 is one of those where I think we miss what's going on with conflict if we don't understand the, where Jesus starts his teaching. And so in, in verse 1, I love this, in verse 1, what we find is the disciples begin to ask Jesus a very bold question. It says, this is their question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is a self-worth question, isn't it? This is, who's the best? And Jesus does something so wild, and he does it all the time. He presents a wonderful object lesson. In verse 2, we pick it up. It says, then Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this culture, what you, it's important to get is that kids were completely pushed aside, right? They did not have the value that we celebrate as the little um, idols or gods we have in our house now that run our house, right? Um, that was not part of the original family units that existed here, um, unless they were the firstborn. Firstborn would get an immense amount of privilege, but that didn't really matter until they were adults. When kids could contribute, they became of value. And so what Jesus does is he pulls a kid from the crowd 
which would have thrown everybody off. And then he puts them among the disciples and he turns and he says, okay, guys, it's time to learn from them. What do you mean learn from them? Learn from them? Yeah, unless you approach your faith like a kid, you're going to miss out on even getting to the kingdom of heaven. Your question of who's the greatest doesn't even matter if you're not there. It's irrelevant. Life is not a race that we run to win so that we could be first place in heaven, is it? Not at all. And, and let's just hang here for a second because Jesus completely disrupts this entire culture in this moment. What in the world are a group of people arguing about the being the greatest in heaven going to learn from a child? Right? They, they section them off. I think when we look at children, they can be pretty honest. Right? Brutally honest sometimes. Would you agree? And they don't even um, think anything of it. I, I think back to like um, when my kids were little, I remember going to get my hair cut. I'd come home all excited, be like, oh, look, daddy's fresh, you know? And, then, and I'd be like, what do you think of my hair Does my hair look good? And they'd be like, yes, it really makes the gray stand out. Not what I was going for. But it was very honest, wasn't it? They weren't meaning to hurt my feelings. They weren't uh, meaning to like, you know, push on me and be like, you're so old. They didn't do that till they're teenagers, right? Isn't it funny though with kids how we try to teach them not to be honest and say those things? We intentionally teach our kids to lie. We call it tact. We call it having manners. But let's just be honest. We're all really embarrassed when they say things that are true. We just didn't want them to say them. So we tell them, don't say things like that, or don't tell them, don't answer those questions the way that they're, they want. You, you just answer it the way they want, not what's real. And we do. We teach our kids to lie. And what's wild in this passage that starts up with value, then Jesus has learned from the kids, is he tells them to be careful in this passage about how you teach your kids because you don't want to lead kids astray. We teach our kids to try to keep the peace, keep false peace. People don't like honesty in our culture. We say we do, but we really don't. Overall, I think we do like being lied to better than having an honest answer. Some really love an honest answer, and you can kind of run with that. But overall, we don't really want honesty. We want people to tell us what we want to hear and what we think. So we teach our kids to do this from very early ages. And the problem, Jesus says in this passage, is you better be careful what you teach your kids. Because if we point them in the wrong direction, Jesus says you're better off having a giant stone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the, into the water. Just You're better off not even being around them because what you're doing is destroying them. Do you think that Jesus cared about kids? I do. I definitely do, because they have these wonderfully expectant attitudes, right? They can look to their parents and they depend on their parents or their caregivers to help meet their needs because they know they can't do that. They learn to recognize when things are out of their control, and so many times they will come to adults. They will come to their parents for help with their problems. If we just read this passage alone, it seems like a simple story about kids and Jesus' care for kids. But the major lesson in all of chapter 18 is actually about conflict management. 
that we can learn from kids. So before we even look at what Jesus says, let's just do what he said to do and pay attention to kids. How do kids handle conflict? Right, how do kids handle conflict? Later on as they become adults, they're gonna handle it just like their parents did most of the time. But to start, they're trying to figure out what to do, don't they? They're trying to figure it out. Let's think about this simple interaction, right? Two kids outside playing with a toy truck together. They've got a truck in between them. They're both enjoying their time in the sand, right? They're doing their thing. Um, they look like they're having fun. I mean, they're smiling, they're grinning. But what happens when, when little Johnny over here on the right, he decides he, he likes Danny's bulldozer better than his, and he's like, I want that, and he takes his bulldozer. What, what options do kids have in this moment? What will they do? Right? In, in this moment, one of them, you know, you can have uh, Danny get up and he's going to leave and he's going to tell, right? Mom, dad, or teacher, someone in authority, you got to come fix this problem. You got to come do this, right? They're, they're looking for help. Maybe you've got a moment where, where they stand up and they confront and say, you know what? I want that back. And they confront the child. You do have those that they wrestle the truck back, don't they? Right? They get all up in it, and as they're wrestling it back, they're like, yeah, and your mom drives a truck, you know, give me that. And, and it's those sort are of the verbal, physical wrestling. Or you, we have this where maybe they go back to class, and you're like, man, could you believe they took the truck? They took the truck. They're the worst. I need the truck. Did you see what they did? And they start to build a case against how horrible that other kid is because they stole the truck, and how they should really apologize. They should do this, but they build this whole case. Right? All of these are options, aren't they? We've seen these in our own kids, and let's do something difficult. If you're a parent, if you're a caregiver, think about what does your kid do out of those options? Guess where they learn that? Think for a second. What would you do if someone took your truck while you were out there playing? You probably learned that from your parents. This is how life works. And if we're being honest, it's our self-worth. That was mine. And you took it. Maybe I'm not as important now. And when our self-worth is in question, we do not normally react like Jesus. But remember, I understand. It's much easier to act like Jesus than to react like Jesus. So how then does Jesus suggest that we handle conflict in our relationships? What are we supposed to do? And this is the passage from Matthew 18 that many times we go to, and it simply says, starting in verse 15, if another believer sins against you, go privately point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then, if he or she, she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. Isn't it funny that Matthew put, puts tax collector in there? I love that. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. 
For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. This passage is not about prayer. We use this passage for prayer where two or three are gathered, God's there. No, no, no. God's with you at all times. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to find someone extra to go, okay, good, now God's with me. No, no, no. He's present with you. This passage, when we are talking about when two or three are gathered, I'm in their presence, and God will give us what we ask, is all about conflict management. We want this issue done with and solved. It's one of those passages that is pulled out all the time out of context, and uh, it's about discipline here. It's about conflict. And this beautiful approach to conflict, it's wonderful because it actually hits all of our relationships. Every relationship could be impacted by what Jesus says here. And I believe that if we followed this passage and what Jesus has to say, so much of our conflict and our frustrations and the life that we lived would be solved. Because this is the reaction of Jesus. Notice in verse 15, he starts out by saying, if another believer sins against you, Jesus starts out by saying, conflict, I recognize it's a shot at you, right? It's something personal. When we're hurt, that self-worth piece, right, there is a plan that we have to move forward. And here we're going to find three different steps that he gives us to help solve conflict. Um, And I do feel like it's important to say this before we look at these steps quickly, is that our attitude and our mental approach when we walk into conflict before we go into it is so important, right? If you're going to try to build these steps in, your heart and your mind are going to be crucial in how you handle conflict. In order to react like Jesus, we have to have the same attitude of Jesus. And this comes from spending time with him. It comes from learning his word and how he relied on the Holy Spirit and he was present, he was peaceful, right? We've got to be in that place if we're going to start to handle conflict well. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to apply these steps and it'll get better if you don't have that attitude of Jesus walking in. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Right? So if you're here and you're like, I'm just going to apply this and it didn't work. Yeah, if you go speak to someone like a jerk and you're like, but I did it that way and they just wouldn't listen. Well, I wouldn't listen to you either if you talked to me that way. Of course they're not. Do we have the attitude of Jesus as we're walking into this of humility And the point of this passage is that Jesus is saying, I want you to have a level. I'm going to give you a tool, and you need to be very careful when you go into conflict, not to be ready to win this like it's a war. But you're going to have to work together, two of you, to figure out how to find balance. And so here's his three steps, reminding us that restoration, having balance in our relationships is the heart of everything he does. The first one is start with one. Start with one. Um, I, I wish I could blow through this step and just be like, all right, we got this, it's easy. But it seems to be the, the, the step that we almost all skip immediately. We skip step one, and then when we're all tripping all over the place, we can't figure out why. And it's because Jesus says in verse 15, you go to that one person who has offended you privately. You go privately to that person. 
conflict experts, both in the business world and sociological uh, world, psychological, they all come together and agree that approximately about 80% of conflict could be resolved if we just started with the person who it was with. Most conflict could be very easily resolved and it's not that big of a deal if we started with the person it was with. But when we're in conflict, uh, we have to understand this is not everybody else's business. It's not everybody else's business. It's between you and the person. It's building a level. It's not between you, the person, Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. It's not between you, coworkers, family, and friends. It's not between you, me, and your small group. When we do this, and we begin to tilt things and share things, we do it to get more opinions than we need. And we're, again, just looking for what we want to hear in conflict. That I'm right. That I'm in the, the best place here. That that person stinks and they are wrong. And the problem that happens is we begin to get all this information. And we're no longer anywhere close to level. We're not even looking to be that it's level. But yet there's another bubble down here. And we're like, but I must be right because it's level. Yeah, to you but it has nothing to do with the person that you are in. You will always be justified with your own reasoning. We're horrible, horrible liars to ourselves, right? We handle conflict wrong when we start to build our case. First, it's only to be handled between you and the person, privately. That's it. No passive-aggressive comments on social media. No group emails. No group texts. Just privately. You two. And I know some of you are freaking out right now. You're like, mm-mm. No way. I am not going to do that. No, I, I, I'm terrified of one-on-one -on -one conflict. I would rather crawl into the hole that was dug by the truck handling conflict like that, to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. I can't imagine this. I would rather say nothing than address that conflict. Let me tell you, I, I know that a lot of churches teach us to downplay conflict, that we should keep the peace and, and, you know, forgive one another. But that's not how Jesus reacted at all. If you've ever read the biographies of Jesus, he never kept false peace. He never kept false peace. He never created this uh, sense of, we're going to be okay if there was conflict around him. He looked at it for what it was, and he's like, okay, this stinks, but we're going to have to deal with it. Jesus came out. He talked with people when he needed to. When Peter pulls him away privately, he addresses Peter in that moment. How? Privately. He came and he talked with the people that he needed to, that he was in conflict with. And if we choose to bury our offenses by not saying anything, this is not reacting like Jesus. Believe it or not, Jesus, he disrupted the peace more than he kept it. This is who he was. He disrupted the peace more than he kept it. And when it comes to conflict, we need to start with the one person that we're in conflict with. It's okay to talk to them. And, and if you are here and you are married, I need you just to lock in for a minute here. When you are having issues with your spouse, I need you to do me a favor, a huge favor. 
Don't talk to the rest of your family members about this. I don't care if your mom or your dad is your BFF forever and, you know, that, that you've got designs down the road to be forever together. You got your plots all picked. Listen, shut your mouth and deal with it with your spouse. This is not your family's business. And I know you're like, wait, why? Because you will get over the issue with your spouse far quicker than your family members will. Your parents, your siblings, they love you and they want the best for you. So when someone hurts you, what do they want to do? Hurt them. They know that you're, uh, you know, not the smartest at times, but they will defend you because they love you. You will get through that fight and it is not your parents and family members' business. Even if you're like, but I just need wisdom. Don't start there. Start one-on-one, -on -one, deal with it with your spouse. Let your parents have the best opinion of your spouse, not the stuff that you want to complain about. There's no place for that. Does that make sense? Too many issues. I'm telling you, you share it with family and it just gets out of control. Um, when Eileen and I are in conflict, I do not share it with my parents. I do not share it with my siblings, not because I don't trust them. I do, but they will hold on to it longer because they love me. I know that. They surprised me this morning just by showing up at church. And I grinned. I was like, oh, my parents are here. This makes me smile. My wife is the best. You don't even have to laugh because you know I'm telling you the truth. It's, that's how I feel. Do we have issues? All the time. She's married to me. When you approach someone that you're in conflict with one-on-one, -on -one, remember you are bringing garbage to the table too. You are not flawless. You are not vertical. You are not upright and standing and have no issues in this game. It is your fault too, just so you know. And when you walk into it from a place of saying, maybe I've contributed to this, you learn that you can listen. You learn how to listen. Go back a couple weeks to week two when we had our earphones. When you learn how to listen in a conflict, you can actually find out maybe there was something I wasn't aware of that triggered you. Maybe there was something that, that you didn't communicate and you said you said that thing. I don't remember that part of it, but you'll never get there if you think you already won and you just want it gone. Conflict is about learning. It's about growing. It's about sharpening. I bet that in most Conflicts, you've missed something along the way, just like you think they did. We go in ready to prove them wrong instead of learning how we might have messed up, even if it was 5%. Are you listening for that? Because it's crucial. We have to listen. You are not a bounty hunter. You're a doctor trying to aim for reconciliation. You do not want death in this relationship. You want restoration because that's at the heart of Jesus. Reconciliation is always the goal. So your, your first step, I'm begging you, start with one. Your second step that Jesus gives, he says, reach out for help. Maybe you took that first step and there's no resolution. There's no restoration. There's no healing. You're both still in conflict and you do not see a way out, right? You're trying to see if things are level and you're like, nope, the, the ball keeps going your way on the table. No, the ball keeps going your way on the, and you just cannot find resolve. Jesus encourages us, he says, listen, go grab one or two people to come with you. Help solve the problem. This is so helpful, but also crazily easy to manipulate, right? If you are one to kind of say, well, I want to win this, you're going to try to find two people, build your jury in your favor, right? And you've got to find the right people to join you in this conversation, someone that's impartial. You can't just invite anyone into the conflict that you're having. 
This is one of the reasons at Crossbridge we talk about counseling all the time. We think it is the best thing for people to get into, to do, to continue with. It's like oil changes for your mind, heart, and soul. Go there. And a counselor is great if you're having uh, uh, relationship issues. Do you know why? They have no vested interest in winning that argument. They can play neutral, and they're so helpful for us. Family counselors can help steer us in amazing ways and see things that neither of us can see in conflict. There are people who are lifelong friends that we have that know the very best and the very worst of us. Someone who's going to tell us the truth, like we talked about in our core a couple weeks ago. Those are the types of people that we could bring in to say, if I'm off on this, you've got to tell me. Because I really think I might be a little bit, but I'm really frustrated at. Right? These are people in your core. If you are a teenager here today and you're having conflict with your parents, take heart, you're not alone. They have conflict with you. It's just part of the, the, the norm here. Can I encourage you? Sometimes I know that right now I'm saying, go to that person. You're going to go head to head with your parent and they're going to be stubborn and, and they're going to fight back and you're going to think, there's no resolve. What am I supposed to do? Who do I have to go to? I could not be more thankful for those of you who give your time week in and week out in our youth ministry because my family has been blessed by small group leaders in the youth ministry here because when my kids have issues with me, which there's conflict there, I know that they can reach out to their small group leaders. And I have actually said to their small group leaders, unless it's illegal or destructive, do not talk to me about the things that they're sharing with you. And if they share how much of a jerk I am, they're probably about 70% right. Because I can be. But I'm not all that much. I'm so grateful they have someone else to talk about that with. Because they need another adult's perspective. Teenagers, go, go to your small group leaders. They are so... They're for you. And they will listen. And they will affirm, yes, your parents are dumb sometimes. But not all the time. Because they love you. I do believe that there's times we should be aware there are people you should not bring in to your conflicts. People you should not bring in. Do not talk to your bartender about your conflicts. That's not how you want to work through this. Do not talk to your fitness coach, but with them all the time. That's not the ear you need. Don't go to someone who has a completely different value system than you do. If you're struggling with your spouse and all of a sudden you go to someone and they're like, yeah, divorce was a great for me. No, it's never great. It's always destructive. It's always hard. It always hurts. There's got to be a better way. Find someone who will fight with you and for you that has the same value system. Don't go to a friend who complains about all of your other friends. You know why? You know why. What are they going to do? They're going to complain about you. Don't share your story with someone who shares a bunch of stories about other people. You could be guaranteed they will share your story. It's not their business. So just don't invite anybody in. And don't be afraid to reach out. The third step is take it to church. This is the last resort. As one of your pastors here, I am asking you to keep this as your last resort. For real, keep this as your last resort because when problems come up to the staff and to the elder level, uh, I can tell you that we handle it in ways that gets pretty uncomfortable for people. 
we go straight to the Bible, we go straight to this passage, and we simply ask, like, hey, um, have you asked and talked to that person specifically about this? And if you say no, we don't listen. Do you know why? Because Jesus didn't. That's what we're going to do. Don't come to me with problems that you have not started one-on-one, that you have not tried to get someone else in. This is the steps that we are supposed to take all together. Um, And everything goes back to Scripture, right? Everything goes back to that one-on-one, the next step. And and if you keep pushing, you know what I'm going to say is, what sin in your life are you dealing with right now that you think is getting in the way of this restoration? What's going on with you? I'm very rarely concerned with fixing the other person because I don't know their story, but you're here. How can we help you? What areas could line up with Jesus? I'll be honest, though. You ready for this? If we all took those first two steps, honestly, I don't think we'd have more than one or two conflicts every two or three years that would need to be resolved at a church level. I'm being completely honest. I think we could do this. We, we love each other. We want the best for each other. Reconciliation, restoration is what we want in all our relationships. But, but we're building an argument to make sure that we're right. And in doing so, we miss an area to grow because conflict sharpens us. We miss this. You see, we've got to follow this because I don't want to have to address things as a church where we know that there are times people will have to leave the church because conflict cannot be resolved. This is reality. Because Jesus says it is. I don't want this. Start with you. Start with one. We won't have to do this. I want us to look like Jesus, and it's a lot easier to act like him than to react like him. Are you reacting like Jesus? Conflict isn't always bad. It sharpens us. It makes us better. It's healthy in in all relationships because you want to have different opinions. Conflict isn't the problem. It's how we solve it that's the problem. And so if someone's going to say something dumb to you, like, don't worry, you don't have to talk about it. Time will heal all wounds. Uh, You know, just wait it out. It'll get better. Don't believe them because it's not true. Jesus says to address these things. Time's not going to heal all wounds, but Jesus will. Jesus can restore. Jesus can reconcile. And so I need to ask if there's relationships that you have that are distant, that do you have Jesus as the central focus of what's bringing this back together? Is Jesus what's at the center or is your selfishness, your self-worth that if I admit I was wrong, I lose No, you don't. Not if the relationship is restored. If you're really wrong, own it, and restoration happens. It's worth losing to save relationships if you're wrong. It's worth losing. It's worth losing because Jesus gave up his life and lost for us so that we would be reunited with God. And he solved our conflict that we could not solve on our own. That our sin has separated us from God. And Jesus said, I'm going to demonstrate with my life how to restore this conflict Now follow me and do what I'm telling you to do. If Christ is not the center of your life, none of your conflicts will find resolution because we will not react like Jesus. Is he your center? I don't want you just taking steps and thinking I'm good because this is about looking, living, acting, and reacting like Jesus. Amen? I know this is hard this morning, and so I'm so grateful 
one of the practices at Crossbridge is communion every week. Because communion is this reminder of what Christ has done for us. That every time we come together, we elevate that, that when the scales were tipped against us because of sin, that Christ said, here is my body and here is my blood. Broken for you, poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that what? So that you may be in relationship with God. If you have trusted Jesus, we invite you to come and to celebrate him, to eat together, to drink together, remembering what he's done for us. And if you're in a place today where you've got just some conflict or some unresolved issues with the people who are around you, what more beautiful time than this to maybe approach them and say, hey, I feel like something's off can we deal with this and take communion to start to put Jesus at the center here? And then can we set up coffee to deal with this or just have a conversation because there's something there. Don't leave with unresolved conflict. Celebrate Jesus by dealing with this. Would you stand with me as we begin to celebrate communion? God, I thank you that you've demonstrated so clearly through your teachings, as Matthew recorded, the guy who's probably hated by all those disciples, that conflict resolution matters because if we're gonna see your kingdom come and, and make disciples throughout all the world, we'll never be able to do this alone and we're gonna have to do this together so we better learn how to disagree well. Not to have completely the same ideas all the time. That's not what you're asking for, but you're asking for us to be in community dealing with the conflict in healthy ways. Thank you for giving up your body for us. Thank you for defeating death so that we may live. Help us to react like you as we drink, as we eat. We lift you high and we say that we identify with you and desire to react like you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.